in a world where terrorism is unfortunately all too popular, all too frequent, what do we do about terminology? Hi, this is Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Russell, Ontario, Canada. You're listening to Canadian Intelligence, eh? Podcasts about national security and public safety. Okay, you've heard me rant on and on and on about words and why words matter. Maybe it's the linguist in me. I don't know. Maybe it's the intelligence analyst in me. But I get really concerned when when governments start changing vocabulary because it suits their purposes or because it suits a certain lobby group. Or dare I say it, it's more politically correct than it once was. Uh, We here in Canada, uh, at least at the official government level, not me, that's for sure, use terms like ideologically motivated violent extremism, as if not all terrorism is ideological or religiously motivated or politically motivated. And speaking of the the last term, religiously motivated, I think most of my listeners would probably default to when you hear the word religion and the word terrorism in the same sentence, you're thinking jihadis, you're thinking Islam is terrorism. Well, a fascinating event took place late last year in Australia um, that's been deemed a religiously motivated act of terrorism, but had nothing to do with Islamists. So what in heaven's name religion was behind this? To talk about this and other matters, I am delighted to be rejoined on my podcast for the first time since March of 2021 by Peter Lowe. She's a principal consultant at Phronesis Consulting and Training in Australia. She was the former director of the Countering Violent Extremism, or CVE, for Juvenile Justice in the New South Wales Department of Justice. She's got a ton of experience in this regard, and she's graciously agreed to stay up late in Sydney to join me today. So, Peter, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Phil. It's great to be back. So this event that I talked about, Pita, um, I believe it was in December of last year. I'm going to butcher the name. It was. It took place in Queensland in a place called Weambilla. Is that right? What exactly happened late last year? Yeah, so it, it kind of, uh, it, it became, we became aware anyway, the general public, me being part of the general public now, I uh, really became aware that there was an incident that occurred at a a small kind of rural location uh, in Queensland. Um, And during that incident, a couple of police officers had been shot and killed, as had uh, another uh, local man who had attended the premises. So obviously as the information started to filter out, um, it appeared that police went looking for a missing person. They went to do a check on the house. Uh, Four young probationary constables uh, were sent. um, And during that um, the attack occurred and uh, following that there was quite a lot of I guess conversation in the media uh, commentary from a variety of experts around sort of what had fueled this attack in the first place and through that came out a lot of uh, online posting that um, that the perpetrators had been involved in around you know different kinds of beliefs belief structures and so it really came, um, it became part of the conversation that there, there was, uh, there is more to violent extremism in Australia than Islamist or right-wing extremism, which has dominated our thinking for quite some time. And, uh, and it's really taken us into a bit of a uh, confusing space, I think, in the country around how, how do we define these things? Uh, why do we define them in different ways? And what are we actually dealing with in Australia at the moment? Now, you, you uh, thankfully uh, forwarded me a very recent, in fact, 
Today, a report by the director of ASIO, the Australian Security Intelligence Organization, the direct counterpart of where I work at the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. I have a lot of friends that work with ASIO. And the director of ASIO came out with some interesting comments in his report, Peter. I just want to quote some of them here. It said here that uh, ASIO worked together with the Queensland police to assess what, as you said, what motivated these particular killers. And they believe, and I quote, the shooting was an act of politically motivated violence, primarily motivated by a Christian violent extremist ideology. Now, let's just stop there for a second. Mm. ASIO has adopted the same terminology my government has, wrongly in my in my mind, but he's he's marrying up two terms which seem to be contradictory. Politically motivated violence. So there was some kind of political ideology. Then he calls it Christian. Now, to me, that's religion. So how do we how do we square this circle with those two those two terms? Yeah, I think that's a very interesting statement. Um, you know, as you've rightly said, uh, across the spectrum of violent extremism, we often find that it fits into sort of these broader categories of either. Uh, religiously motivated, politically motivated, ideologically motivated, or this kind of weird special interest kind of group, which can just be those people who um, hold particular single issues. Um, so the fact that it's been called an act of politically motivated violence that was primarily motivated by religious ideology uh, seems to confuse those two kind of areas. And the question then is, um, is there some politically motivated violence, which we would normally consider um, as being aligned with some uh, political kind of group, if we think about political as it sits in the left or right, uh, and then perhaps this underlying ideology of religion as well that might have fed into that. But they they seem to have confused those two things in that in that conversation. Now, I'm going to ask you an unfair question, Peter, but um, I, I do know that here in Canada, the decision to issue terms like Islamist terrorism, uh, Sikh terrorism, you can't use the word Sikh terrorism in Canada. A, a report came out famously a couple of years ago in which we talked about Sikh terrorism. Of course, the Air India bombing back in 1985, perpetrated by Canadian Sikh terrorists, was the single greatest act of aviation terrorism in history prior to 9-11 because people said, well, you're, you're singling out communities, you're... Uh, marking them for, I don't know, retribution or criticism or perhaps attacks on themselves. I, I call that politically correct. I mean, the terminology has changed over the years. Why do you think the Australian government has followed Canada's lead in this regard? Because he says, and this is interesting, Peter, he, the director of ASIO says, and I quote, these are not simply semantic or academic distinctions. Words matter. Facts matter. Actions matter. If we as a community, here's the important part, persist in getting the diagnosis wrong, we will struggle to find a cure. So as you pointed out, the, the terminology does seem to be saying two things at the same time. Um, is this part of a broader movement down, down under or not? Look, firstly, I would say that I completely agree um, that words matter in, in the space of violent extremism. I completely agree with that. Uh, I think we have to be very careful that we are um, accurately, not just assessing, but communicating what we've assessed as well. And sometimes that can be really challenging and difficult when there are political agendas, when there are um, issues in terms of how that might be communicated to particular communities, to different groups. Uh, so I think 
where um, where the director has called out, you know, semantics and academic distinctions, I wonder if that's helpful. But I think I do agree that words matter. We are having quite a difficulty in this country and we have been since, uh, especially since we've noticed a bit of a rise in, in what's been called right-wing extremism in this country. Right. I'm yet right. to get clarification around an actual definition of what that looks like, uh, you know, on the spectrum from patriotism to nationalism to mm-hmm. actual violent extremist ideology. So we haven't we haven't really had a very thorough conversation about what that actually means in this country. And and, and so far we've, we have gazetted uh, um, uh, two, I believe now, terrorist organisations that are uh, right-wing inspired ideological organisations. Neither of them are Australian, but we still have kind of moved some way to, to looking at what do we consider to be right-wing extremism. Um, but I, I think it, it's a complicated space for us because, in fact, I think sometimes we do communicate things and we use semantics as a way out of that. And I think, um, you know, calling this a politically motivated yet largely inspired by religious ideology, um, you know, I wonder if that isn't a little bit of semantics. Um, You know, there'll be a fundamental motivating factor uh, for why this attack was undertook. And I'm not privy to all the information that ASIO has, so I'm not questioning their assessments, I'm assuming they have the information around those mm-hmm. assessments. Uh, but that those assessments would clearly be able to advise them on whether this was adherence to a religious violent extremist ideology or whether this was an adherence to a political set of beliefs and ideological structures. Um, but it seems as though, from my reading of that anyway, he's saying both of those things contributed, which which would indicate to me that it wasn't just religion, that perhaps there was some either uh, political ideology or, um, you know, another kind of ideological reason. If it it was clearly religious ideology, then there would be no need to call it politically motivated. Well, exactly. And, and, you know, you, you raise a good point, Peter. You know, words do matter. And I think that going back to my days in the security service, you know, we didn't, use words lightly. I mean, if we called something something, it's because we had done a lot of thought about it. We looked at all the data we had. Uh, we looked at what other people were saying, both academics, uh, journalists, et cetera, et cetera. And we chose the best words possible. And, and this case in, in Queensland does seem to point out, as you said, to a, a strange mixture and one that's really hard to nail down. I, I just read a recent article in The uh, Economist uh, about you know what happened in January of 2021, and you know the far what they call the far the economist calls the far right United States, and they do say that this um it's really hard to nail this one to the wall in terms of what are the motivations are they truly political uh, are they ideological what's the difference between pol- political and ideolo- ideological whereas with the jihadis we we have the advantage that they're pretty well all cut from the same cloth it doesn't matter where you are in the world Islamist terrorists kind of all believe the same thing and they they post the same things and they cite the same sources and they say the same things and they target the same enemies. Where do you think we can go then with this real challenge of trying to, we're dealing with a, a, a series of attacks, a series of actors that defy traditional, easy, customary labels and it continues to mutate. So in your opinion, what's the best way forward in, in trying to categorize this stuff? 
Which it's fascinating to me. I think the best way forward is to not categorise it. Um, I think what, and I think right wing extremism and certainly some of the attacks uh, Christchurch and and others have taught us is that, you know, in this space, really that there is a mixture. There's often a concoction of different belief sets and structures that are all brought into one. And and you're right. You make a point around religious violent extremism, religious ideologies are often very well defined. Uh, People are often very clearly following a particular belief or, you know, and that's my understanding of of certainly the attack in Queensland and pre-millennialism, although I'm not an expert in that area, but certainly reading around what pre-millennialism is, Mm -hmm. it's, it's quite clearly defined there's not a lot of politicism in there at all it's a religious belief it's a religious belief around the second coming uh, which is no different to um, you know some of the religious teachings or thinkings that were used to motivate many Australians as well as others to um, head to the Middle East for uh, you know what was meant to be um, the Arab uprising. So mm-hmm. it's sort of it, you know those kinds of things become quite clear because someone is subscribed and/or committed and/or um, you know, has pledged allegiance to a particular structure of thinking. And we don't have that uh, as clearly in the ideological or political space. So uh, for me, I mean, it really makes no difference the actual content of the ideology, whether it's political, religious, ideological, or a mixture of all of those things. Mm-hmm. We really need to be focused on what is the intent to do harm, to use violence, for what gain, for what purpose, and how is that violence meant to be used? So categorising becomes, to me, almost unnecessary. If we understand mm-hmm. someone has a belief structure that legitimises the use of violence to bring about change, surely that person, regardless of whether it's ideologically, politically or religiously motivated um, needs uh, the attention of organisations and agencies. And sometimes I feel like uh, we spend way too much time trying to figure out which out of all of those areas the biggest threat is coming from and surely the biggest threat is just the willingness um, and advocacy of the use of violence. Now, to complicate things further, Peter, I do want to go back to the director of ASIO's report, and he talks about uh, you know, terrorism is a significant threat in some parts of the world. Uh, you in Australia live in a very dangerous neighborhood with you know uh, groups in the Philippines and in Indonesia, etc. And he says, uh, in our near region, under ISIL or ISIS in- influence, religiously motivated violent extremists are adapting their methods. Um, he says, despite strong counterterrorism pressure in the Philippines and Indonesia, the ISIS will continue to plan and conduct simple attacks, and we can't take our eye off the ball kind of thing. So, you know, I've often said we had the luxury, if that's the term, to be able to focus our counterterrorism resources largely on Islamist terrorism for the past 20 years, because that's where the threat was coming from, not just yeah. globally, but in our own lands. We, you've seen attacks in Australia. We've seen attacks here in Canada. How does this complicate things when you start throwing in actors like millennialists, whatever, millenarians, and people, as you said, that are really hewing to a dog's breakfast of ideas, some political, some religious? You know, in terms of counterterrorism, in terms of CVE, which you've been involved in, this really complicates things, doesn't it, in terms of how to figure out what kinds of strategies are you going to adopt? In a, in a CVE context more narrowly, 
how do you deal with somebody who seems to have a whole bunch of things thrown into a pot, put it on simmer for a couple of hours, and they come up with an ideology? What, what, like, what kind of approach do you take in that regard? I think there's two sort of kind of clear and separate issues there for me. And one is um, the threat, and that is managed the same regardless of um, the, po- the political, ideological or religious nature of the threat. The threat is the same and that's intent to do harm and that needs to be managed, it needs to be addressed. The second is if we're really seriously looking at how do we actually do PVE, CVE well, then we have to recognise that this um, fracturing, uh, complicating of the space is really as a result of us failing to see that creating communities, societies, cultures, countries that are polarised, where groups are stigmatised, where there is is an us and theming within communities, we have actually contributed to the problem and we are causing some of the issues that contribute to people taking much more extreme views of what they need to do in order to feel as though they're connected and they belong and they're safe. So I feel like as as soon as we start targeting a particular group, no matter what that group is, uh, what we start to see is a rise in groups on the on the other end of the spectrum as well. So if we're going to be serious about this, then I think we actually have to take the labelling out and we have to talk about threat and harm in a way mm-hmm. that we're collectively saying anyone with views where um, they are considering harming other people or fi- using violence or, you know, that kind of notion in the broad spectrum of violence is a concern for us and it's a concern for our community and it needs to be addressed the same way. Um, and I think we're in a space now where we're constantly looking at, well, what is the next threat? How do we pop that mm-hmm. nicely in a little container and talk about it as though it's separate from any other risk or threat that exists and the reality is they're all interconnected. So I think it's about labelling, winding ourselves back from the need to fit someone in a neat box and contain them there in terms of their their thinking or their belief structure. The reality is people just often aren't that clear in their thinking and their beliefs. They often have a variety of different, um, you know, uh, belief sets that can make up their overall belief structure. So, you know, to, to think that um, that people are one-dimensional in that sense really, um, I think, disregards how complicated humans can be. I really like the way you frame this, Peter. At the end of the day, what we're trying to do is identify people who, as you said, intend to do harm, intend to use violence, and stop them, irrespective mm-hmm. of what's driving that, whether it's terrorism or hate or let's face it, just, you know, garden style um, murder that has no motivation behind it, really. So I, I think it's important that, you know, as law enforcement, as security intelligence, as society in general, you're absolutely right. We're, what we're, try- we're trying to do is prevent death and injury. And and, and reasons why that, that's secondary. And we don't need to, to sort of, as you said, obsess about the labeling. Uh, moving I, forward I think, then. Sorry, go I ahead. think also, as well as preventing death and injury, we are actually trying to prevent harm. We're trying to prevent harm to people in the community where they don't feel safe, where they feel Mm -hmm. as though they don't belong. I mean, all of these things on the spectrum of harm ultimately lead to the loss of life, Mm -hmm. but we can't just be focused on loss of life as the only harm that occurs in these spaces. And, um, And I think that that's important for us if we're thinking about, well, not only... 
the difference between threat and risk in this space, but also what are we trying to achieve? Are we just trying to stop people from killing people or would we like to wind it back even further where the conditions for these kinds mm-hmm. of ideologies aren't present and that way we all remain safe? Which is the whole point of PCV, right, is to identify these issues earlier rather than later so you can put into effect measures so that you don't have this fracturing of society. So, Peter, this this event in Queensland may be a one-off. Who knows? We may see other things going forward. As an Australian, when you look at your country and, and sort of see what's what's been happening, and I'm sure you have the same problems we have here in Canada. You have like anti-immigrant groups, for example. You still deal with your First Nations issue, your Aboriginal issue that we, you know, has been going on for decades, uh, the atrocious treatment of, of people that have been here for thousands of years. Uh, what worries you, uh, you know, late at night in Sydney in, in you know, late <laughs> February of 2023? What keeps you up at night when it comes in t- terms of this general conversation of violent extremism, community relations and things like that? What is it that really bothers you? Look, I guess on a on a quite a existential level, what really bothers me is the fracturing of of humanity. Um, and I think more and more I see extremes of polarization. I see extremes of othering, dehumanization of different groups or of identities. Or um, and and I that really worries me is we're getting to a space where in order for us to be safe, we almost have to make others unsafe. Um, you know, and, and you make a good point. I mean, you know, we have been focused on, you know, uh, Islamist extremism because it was the the area of threat with, without seeing how it's connected to the rest of the community and not only the rest of the community but the harms that it's done to, um, you know, the Islamic community in Australia as well. So uh, we can't be looking at one thing exclusively without seeing the connectedness of it to others. So what worries me a little bit is that we keep moving down a pathway that hasn't worked for us previously by trying to label and identify and categorise. And then, you know, I saw it recently in Australia, we had, you know, an expose of right-wing extremism and I thought it was some of the the most dangerous uh, media coverage I've seen because it was really about labelling and othering um, and I found that it was probably more harmful than helpful in the sense of what it might have been trying. I don't really know what it was trying to achieve, but I looked at it and thought, this is really dangerous. We're now making another group of people feel, and, and people who might not even have been specifically involved in that particular group, but people who might have held similar beliefs, people who might have had similar understandings of the world or similar experiences and we're now forcing them all into this one group giving them a collective identity and almost marginalizing them to the point where we were creating more of the the group than necessarily we were managing by exposing it to the community and I I feel like if we keep heading down this pathway we're just going to continue to fracture the community and societies more and more Uh, And what we really should be trying to do now is collectively bring people back together, is to build the empathy and understanding, um, the tolerance, the acceptance, that difference is really to be celebrated and embraced and that it's not scary and dangerous. And if if we can bring communities back together to recognise that the threat to our our existence, our humanity, our communities comes from a very small group of individuals, no matter their religious, ideologically or politically motivated reasons. It's a very small group of individuals. And in fact, Mm -hmm. the rest of us 
could actually get along quite well and overthrow that group of small individuals Mm -hmm. if we stopped letting that small group of individuals fracture us as a society and community. They're the kinds of things that worry me um, because it's a pathway to nowhere if we can't get that right. You used a great phrase, uh, Peter. How you know we we keep doing things even though they're wrong. It's like the old the old saying that if you find yourself in a hole, the first thing to do is stop digging. <laughs> yeah, you stop making the same mistakes. And and again, going back to the the director of ASIO's uh, report, uh, he makes a. I think this is very germane to what you just said. I'm also concerned that all too often commentators fail to distinguish between extreme views and violent extremism. One can lead to the other, but that does not mean that they're the same thing. It takes careful nuanced work to disentangle groups and individuals that will engage in violence from groups and individuals that may have views that are awful, but still lawful, which brings me to the whole freedom convoy in Ottawa last year, but that's a whole other other conversation. Peter, you brought up a lot of really good points today about the need for, I think, a a careful assessment of what's going on, not to overemphasize it. As you said, you know, you in Australia and he, and we here in Canada are very, very safe, generally speaking, uh, safer than many countries in the world. We're not faced with these existential threats, which many have called terrorism. It's anything but existential, unless you're living in Afghanistan or Somalia or parts of, of sub-Saharan Africa. And, and I think you've, you've given us this, you know, sage advice that, you know, let's just try to make things better and stop, you know, putting things in buckets that, uh, just make things worse. So um, thanks so much for, for joining me on the podcast day. It's been far too long since I've had you on, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to reach out in the future when other things happen. So I do appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Phil. It's great to speak to you again. That was my conversation with Peter Lowe in Sydney about what happened in Australia and, and what exactly all this stuff means. And do we have to keep putting things in certain categories and to what end? Love to hear what you thought of our conversation. You can reach me on email, borealisrisk at gmail.com or on Twitter at Borealis Saves. You can also find me on LinkedIn and on Facebook. If you like the content want to get more, please go to the website, borealisthreatenrisk.com. Hit the subscribe button. You'll get all the podcasts and blogs free of charge. I also want to point out my, my latest book has been republished, The Peaceable Kingdom, A History of Terrorism in Canada from Confederation of the Present, available on Amazon, published uh, very graciously by Double Dagger Books here in Canada. Uh, we'll talk again soon. I hope to hear some feedback for you on this and other podcasts. Until then, take care.